This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by The Beach. Want to see ocean levels rise, get hit by UV rays poking through the holes in the ozone, and see plastic bags and cigarette butts wash up on the shore? Go to The Beach today. Welcome to episode 7 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about earthquakes, the thing that happens when Earth has an orgasm. While many parts of the world experience earthquakes rarely, if ever, several other areas get hit on a very regular basis. A strong earthquake hit Idaho just before 5 p.m. A 4.5 earthquake shook much of San Diego tonight. A preliminary 6.4 quake near Tonopah, Nevada. An earthquake of the magnitude 4.6 struck near Delhi. Yet another powerful earthquake has struck southern Puerto Rico. Around here, they're still worried it's about It's a freaking earthquake. earthwake. Back and forth Holy cow. about it and telling us, We're in hey, the middle of an earthquake, Tony. Tony. for them to really handle. Again, oh my this God. is impacting a thousand. Oh. Are you guys okay? Oh my gosh. Are you guys okay? We are, oh my gosh. Tony, I'm sure your on-the-field report was enthralling, but how did it take a full 10 seconds for your brain to react to someone shouting, there's a freaking earthquake? If someone shouted, Adam Sandler's in the building, how long would it take you to run over and say, oh my god, Adam Sandler, I loved you in that, uh, what was that movie from the 90s called? But it's true, earthquakes happen a lot. All six of those clips were from 2020, and three were within the last month. And while it may be surprising that that many earthquakes happened in one year, is it really? The only years worse than 2020 are 1347, year of the Black Death, 135 million BC, the year that raccoons evolved, and 2013, the first time Owen Wilson said, Wow! But in terms of earthquakes, 2020 is not unusual. Scientists estimate that there are 500,000 to a million earthquakes every year, around one per minute. And while most of these are too small to notice, and many actually occur underwater, around 100 are big enough to cause damage, sometimes resulting in human casualties. So let's discuss why earthquakes happen, what issues they cause, and how we can prepare for them in the future. First, let's go over what an earthquake is. And who better to teach us than peekaboo kids? The surface of the earth is like a jigsaw puzzle. Yes, it's not a single piece of land, but approximately 20 pieces of a puzzle that constantly move. But you don't feel it because they move quite slowly. Each one of those puzzle pieces are called tectonic plates. So, whenever those plates hit, bump, or slide past another plate, an earthquake is caused. Now you know that whenever the earth is stressed or angry, it shakes and grumbles. <laughs> wow, that went from a kid's show to a horror movie faster than Incredibles 2. Earthquakes are primarily caused at the boundaries, or faults, of tectonic plates, in three different ways. At a convergent fault, the two plates move toward each other, pushing one plate over the other and creating a mountain. At a divergent fault, the two plates move away from each other, creating rifts and trenches. At a strike-slip fault, two adjacent plates move laterally in different directions. Think of walking down a hallway and passing someone walking in the opposite direction. 
or driving your car down a narrow road with a school bus coming the other way. Even though this movement is going on right under our feet, we don't actually feel it. That's because tectonic plates only move about one to two inches every year. Although, when you think of things that only move about one to two inches every year, you probably think of Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Come on, the two of you were 39th and 16th in quarterback rushing last season. Tom, there aren't even 39 teams in the league. And Aaron, just 183 yards? Maybe you wouldn't have to throw Hail Marys every game if you could drag that 50-pound mustache a little further down the field. And like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, just because the plates are slow doesn't mean they're steady. Most earthquake-inducing stress is caused by the movement of tectonic plates. Sometimes, their edges may catch and stick. The plates, however, continue to move, or at least attempt to. Energy from this attempted movement builds around the edge's sticking point, creating immense pressure until the edges are forced to let go and the plates slip. And that sudden jolt tears the Earth's crust, which releases a vibration and creates an earthquake. Since quakes generally happen on these fault lines, it makes sense that some parts of the world barely see earthquakes, while others notably anywhere bordering the Pacific Ocean like California, Alaska, Chile, Japan, and Indonesia, see several. Geologists measure earthquakes' intensity using the Richter scale. Each value represents 10 times the vibration amplitude of the previous value. So a 3 quake has 10 times the intensity of a 2, a 4 has 10 times the intensity of a 3, and so on. The largest recorded earthquake in history was a 9.5 in Chile in 1960, which sadly left 2 million people homeless and 5,700 casualties. On the one hand, earthquakes are a good thing. Without the Earth's extremely hot core and mantle far beneath our feet, which pushes the crust around, Earth would be a cold, desolate planet incapable of sustaining human life. But even though we need earthquakes to survive, we also hate them, sort of like bees or dental hygienists. And for good reason, they can cause a lot of damage. Let's rewind to the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. An earthquake with a magnitude of 7.8 shakes the city. Roads rip apart and people panic. Buildings never designed to withstand earthquakes crumble. In just a few hours, an inferno engulfs San Francisco. After three days, the fires burn themselves out to leave a scene of utter annihilation. 80% of the city is in ruins. That's awful. Mother Nature, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> wow. Not cool, Mother Nature. Not cool. The San Francisco Bay lies right above the San Andreas Fault, a 750-mile strike-slip fault line that borders the Pacific Plate and North American Plate. And while exact numbers are uncertain, historians estimate that the 1906 earthquake left 225,000 homeless, 3,000 dead, and over half the city's buildings destroyed. Since the city was in absolute ruins, many more people evacuated to Los Angeles and Oakland. And if there's one thing that we know spells disaster, it's people willingly traveling to Oakland. This 1906 earthquake is famous for helping scientists discover and understand the San Andreas Fault, but unfortunately, 
It does not stand alone. I mentioned the 1960 Chilean earthquake already, and even in the last decade, there have sadly been some really horrific ones. In 2010, a powerful earthquake flattened the isolated Tibetan city of Yushu, killing thousands and leaving 100,000 homeless. Today marks 10 years since Haiti was devastated by a powerful earthquake. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed, one and a half million people were injured, and just as many were left homeless. This week marked nine years since the devastating earthquake and tsunami in Japan. The disaster triggered another crisis, a meltdown at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. More than 160,000 people fled the region along Japan's northern coast, and many have never returned. And the list goes on and on. And after hearing about all these tragedies, it's hard not to feel hopeless. I know I did. While a lot of environmental issues we deal with, like pollution, waste, or deforestation, are ones humans cause and can control, earthquakes can flatten a city in seconds, and we can't stop tectonic plates from moving, nor should we want to. Scientists have not established any significant link between earthquakes and human behavior, and we know earthquakes happen whether we're here or not. So as of now, humans can't really prevent earthquakes. They're also hard to predict, sort of like weather or where your girlfriend wants to go for dinner. We've tried looking backwards at quakes that have already happened and identifying events that occurred in the days before they hit, like multiple mini quakes, big releases in radon gas, changes in magnetism, and even weird animal behavior to see if any of these were predictors of an impending quake. But lots of times these things happen without accompanying earthquakes, and lots of times earthquakes happen without these things. So, so far, we haven't been able to find any reliable predictors. Exactly. We can't say with any degree of certainty when or where the next big earthquake will happen. Except, of course, on July 17, 2020, when Christopher Nolan's new movie Tenet comes out, because if it's anything like The Prestige, Inception, or Interstellar, it will be earth-shattering. And scientists are trying hard to find a way to predict quakes. Two days' warning would give a city enough time to evacuate, and even a few seconds would be enough to turn off oil and gas pipelines that often rupture and catch fire. Currently, we can't even do that. All we can do is identify fault lines and look to the past for patterns. And when we do that for the southern part of the San Andreas Fault near LA, we find a grim reality. On average, the San Andreas Fault ruptures every 150 years but southern parts of the fault have remained inactive for over 200 years. In other words, we're overdue for a major shake. According to a 2008 federal report, the most likely scenario is a 7.8 magnitude quake that would rupture a 200-mile stretch along the southernmost part of the fault. The report also found that a 7.8 earthquake along the southern part of the San Andreas Fault would cause around 2,000 deaths, 50,000 injuries, and $200 billion in economic costs. These forecasts have earned this quake a nickname, the big one, which is amazing because you'd think with 26 7-foot-3 or taller NBA players, 43,000 restaurants in Texas, and who knows how many male strippers, someone would have patented the name the big one. And as physicist Michio Kaku suggests, the big one is coming. It's only a matter of time. In 30 years' time, 30 years, the probability of the big one is about 100%. How so we will see the big one. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's the law of physics. We're playing Russian roulette with Mother Nature. And that is terrifying. 
Although if you're going to play a game with Mother Nature, that game should really be Hungry Hungry Hippos. You may be able to make a male seahorse carry and birth 2,000 babies at one time, Mother Nature, but let's see you swallow some marbles. So the big one is coming, soon, and we can't stop it, but we can prepare for it and limit the damage. First, on an individual level, knowing and following safety protocols can be life-saving. Drop to your hands and knees, cover your head with your arms, and hold on to heavy furniture until the earthquake stops. If you're in a car, pull over. If you're indoors, do not stand in a doorway. If you've been trapped in a falling building, try to stay calm. Cover your mouth to keep debris from getting into your airway. Send a text if you can, bang on a pipe, or use a whistle to get a rescuer's attention. These are just a few safety measures, and if you do live in an earthquake-prone region, be sure to continue researching these protocols. Individuals can also take steps beforehand to prepare. Secure any large items like TVs to the wall, or place them on low shelves so they don't fall. Don't let your car run too low on gas or your phone too low on battery, since you may not have access to gas and electricity immediately after. Consider purchasing an earthquake survival kit, or at the very least some essentials like water, non-perishable food, a flashlight, and a whistle. And wear pajamas to bed so you don't end up trapped naked. Unless, of course, you're Justin Timberlake, in which case please, please don't wear pajamas to bed. What about on a macro scale? In terms of buildings, structural engineers have invented ways to make buildings earthquake safe. Take LA's City Emergency Management Department. Get this, the building is not actually connected to its foundation. This two-story, 84,000 square foot box is floating on 40 suspension points. When an earthquake as powerful as an 8.0 hits, the ground around the building will shake side to side, but the building itself and the people inside will appear to stand still. This is really cool. But adding these suspension points to keep the building off the ground added an extra $5 million to the construction cost, so it's unlikely private building owners would adopt this technology without some heavy monetary incentives. Luckily, there are cheaper ways to retrofit buildings to be earthquake safe. LA and surrounding cities have been implementing some retrofitting programs, particularly targeting non-ductile concrete buildings and soft-story wood frame buildings built before 1978, and as of last year, over the 12,000 soft-story buildings in LA, 1,500 have been retrofitted, 6,400 are in progress, and 5,000 have not started the process. Given that soft-story buildings are the most at risk, this makes some sense. However, one type of building they've ignored is welded steel moment frame buildings. Soft-story buildings versus steel moment frame buildings are sort of like the house made of straw and the house made of sticks. Sure, the sticks are better, but the big bad wolf could blow both buildings down. And it's true, the steel buildings are safer, but these are often tall skyscrapers where people work in the heart of the city. So even if buildings collapsing is less likely, losing a skyscraper would lead to more lost jobs and economic activity. Furthermore, since there are more people inside skyscrapers, it could lead to more injury and death. The city could start retrofitting steel buildings or offer tax breaks or subsidies to building owners that want to make their buildings earthquake safe. All of these steps cost money, but then again, so does rebuilding a collapsed structure after an earthquake. 
So the question boils down to whether the city wants to take on the costs. It's like the question of whether you want one marshmallow now or two marshmallows later, but instead of marshmallows, it's someone taking billions of dollars out of your bank account. Currently, there's also minimal knowledge as to how safe each building is. After a 6.7 earthquake in Ridgecrest, California, or about a tenth of the projected intensity of the big one, LA inspected 200 of their 2,000 steel buildings. 30 had tilted or sustained cracks to the foundation. Despite these findings, the other 1,800 have yet to receive an inspection. And according to seismologist Lucy Jones, they should. I think every building owner should personally look and say, do I need to have an inspection? Just because you haven't been told you have to retrofit doesn't mean you're safe. Like retrofits, inspections could be public, voluntary, or a public-private partnership. Some have proposed a system like restaurant health inspections, where people can see a building's earthquake readiness letter grade on the front window. LA would just have to be sure the graders aren't from Harvard, since if they were, every building would get an A. Of the estimated $200 billion price tag on the big one, around $33 billion is for buildings. Much of the rest comes from lost productivity and economic activity, since many survivors will lose their homes, jobs, and livelihoods, and may have to evacuate. Let's turn to University of Pittsburgh sociologist Junia Howell, who researches how natural disasters affect wealth. Keep in mind, wealth is not the number in your bank account. It's the value of a person's assets minus their debts. So if you own a house, or a car, or a Death Star in your yard, the value of these assets contributes to your wealth. If you have student loans or a mortgage, or you bet your friend 10 bucks they couldn't chug a bottle of Tabasco, but little did you know they swapped the Tabasco with V8 juice and made you look like an idiot, these debts would reduce your wealth. Dr. Howell compared over time people's wealth accumulation if they'd experienced a natural disaster versus if they hadn't, setting all other factors equal. Her findings were shocking. The people living through disaster are making more money at this end of this time period than the people that didn't experience any disaster. Not at all what I expected going into this research. Not at all what we would expect, right? Big disasters hit. We expect that to affect your wealth, your health, all these things in the long term. It's, in fact, making people richer. And when I heard that, all I could say was, Wow. So why does that happen? Mostly, it comes from people who already have wealth. If someone owns a house and has earthquake insurance, they'll get a payout and be able to rebuild their house. When they do, they might put in new windows or a new garage or an at-home water park with a slide on the roof, increasing the house's value. Same goes for a wealthy corporation on a much larger scale. From a grander economic perspective, these findings do suggest the economy can rebuild, even though it costs a lot of money. But people without much wealth don't experience these same benefits. Dr. Howell found striking disparities in wealth accumulation between homeowners and renters and college-educated and non-college-educated, but the largest disparity was this one. In particular, the black population is losing wealth compared to their black counterparts. So not only compared to their white neighbors, but compared to their black counterparts who didn't experience the disaster. So disaster is costing them while actually benefiting their white neighbors. 
when you add to the model FEMA aid, so FEMA is our federal response to natural disasters, this inequality grows even higher. Meaning that instead of mitigating this inequality, our federal aid is exacerbating it. Not only are black people losing wealth in natural disasters while their white counterparts gain wealth, but the way FEMA currently allocates funds actually makes the disparity worse. And this distribution remains unequal after adjusting for income. I mean, FEMA distributes aid worse than YouTube distributes ads. YouTube, you show me one ad, I hit skip ad after five seconds, then you show me a second ad? And don't get me started on when they throw up the survey and say Google advertisers want to ask you one question. Google, it's your job to answer my questions. After Hurricane Harvey, a survey of 1,600 Texans in 24 counties found that 52% of white respondents were able to get the help they needed, as opposed to 46% of Hispanic respondents and 32% of black respondents. Dr. Howell noted, too, that white middle-class communities are helped first in restoring homes, roads, and electricity after a disaster. What does this mean for the big one? To be prepared, FEMA would need to rethink its relief distribution process, looking at racial injustice and wealth inequality. But remember, too, FEMA exacerbated an existing issue. Homeowners receive a huge advantage over renters, even those with renter's insurance. And according to a study from ApartmentList.com, in L.A., 44% of white people own homes, as compared to 31% of Latinos and 21% of African Americans. So getting to the root cause requires a much more comprehensive look at racial and wealth inequality. For those who can afford it, earthquake insurance can be helpful too, especially since home insurance and renter's insurance often don't cover damages from earthquakes. What you need to understand is that you have to actually get another policy separate from your homeowner's or your renter's policy to cover earthquake. But a new home buyer's probably is going to range somewhere between three to four hundred dollars, you know, for a year. For some people, three hundred dollars is not much, but for others, that may be too expensive. A variety of plans exist depending on whether someone wants to cover their possessions in the house or if the house becomes uninhabitable and they need to do the unthinkable and evacuate to Oakland. However, in LA, only 21% of homeowners have earthquake insurance, and in some suburbs, that number drops below 10%. The government could consider tax incentives or even public options to increase coverage and perhaps offset some of the recovery cost after the big one, or some campaign to raise public awareness on what earthquake insurance plans exist and why someone would consider it, besides, of course, becoming best friends with Jake from State Farm. Three in the morning and that dude is still willing to talk? That's insurance, friendship, therapy, and khaki modeling all bundled up into one. Just because humans can't control earthquakes doesn't mean we can't control how much damage they cause. Even though I live on the opposite end of the country from L.A., Given that LA is the second largest city economy in the country, where most of our favorite TV shows and movies are made, and a home to millions of people, including Beyonce, we all have a vested interest in the city staying on its feet. And if we prepare our buildings, people, and economy well enough, Mother Nature won't be able to point at LA and say, <laughs> Do you ever hear about global warming and wonder why you're not warming too? If so, the beach is the place for you. 
Lie back with a blanket, put on some sunscreen, and watch the ocean fill with microplastics and acidity all day long. The beach, or as your kids will call it, the flooded parking lot. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Joe LaDuca, a rising senior at the University of Connecticut studying material science and engineering, and Molly McRan, a sophomore at UCLA studying Chinese international development. We're also joined by Dr. Robert Buckwalt, a research professor in the Earth and Environment Department at Boston University, specializing in geology. Dr. Buckwalt, Molly, Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. Dr. Buckwalt, I know the major fault lines are on the boundaries between tectonic plates, but when you look at a map, there's tons of other fault lines too. In California, there's hundreds. So I'm wondering why these smaller fault lines occur and if major earthquakes can happen on those smaller faults or if it's mainly just at the plate boundaries. Faults and earthquakes are produced if we have stresses in anything. If you take a piece of wood and you're bending that piece of wood, we are applying stresses to the bending of the wood. And if we are put applying enough stress to that material, we're actually starting to break that wood and that creates earthquakes. So the idea of plate tectonics is that the main movement is actually happening on these tectonic plate boundaries, but we are still having stresses. If you're pushing something together, if you have two plates and they're both moving in opposite direction, we are creating stresses in that and so if we have weaknesses, we are actually creating zones of breakage within the surface. Molly, you're in Los Angeles. You probably experienced last year's big earthquake. We have a breakage going on there, but the breakage is not happening along the big fault line, but we have small, smaller faults which are actually breaking along the area. Taking the example of a piece of wood, the wood doesn't really break in one specific line, but all the different fibers in the woods are breaking separately. And so the idea behind that is the same idea in fault lines where we have fibers which are interconnected into each other and they are breaking during an earthquake, during the buildup of a stress and the failure, we call that failure, the breakage, we call that failure. And so we are creating a lot of fibers along the Los Angeles area and especially along the California coast where we're actually producing a lot of that breakage. So we have a lot of small earthquake fault lines which are building a zone which we are calling the big fault and plate boundary, especially in California. Right now, earthquakes are really hard to forecast with any real precision. And I'm curious if you think there's a good chance that we'll see some scientific breakthroughs and maybe be able to do that someday, or if that's pretty unlikely. Earthquake forecast is complicated because we are actually pretty good in predicting earthquake if we have a homogeneous surface. So if the material where we're actually building up the stress is one material. So we know relatively good when we are putting a specific amount of stress on a piece of iron in our engineering. Joe, you're an engineer. If we have a homogeneous piece of metal, we know exactly how much square pounds per inch we actually can apply until we actually see the failure. The problem what we actually have in our Earth is that the material we are confronted with 
is not one chunk of metal. It is actually a lot of different materials. We have rocks. Rocks are made out of different minerals. Different minerals are behaving differently. We need to know the exact percentages of these occurrences of different minerals. We have metamorphic rocks, we have igneous rocks, we have sedimentary rocks. These are all different kinds of rocks. All of these behaving differently under stress. In addition to that, we have weaknesses produced by humans by building cities, by putting some material into places, by rechanging the surface. Um, so all of that is extremely complex and complicated and makes predictions of things nearly impossible because we don't know what that material is. We are actually capable of addressing and finding locations and are capable of predicting earthquakes. And we can predict also the intensity of earthquakes relatively good. But the error associated with the predictions is extremely big and I'm not sure if we ever will be able to say tomorrow at five o'clock we have an earthquake. We will have in 10 years an earthquake. I can predict for example for LA you will have an earthquake pretty soon <laughs> in that. Uh, I can predict in Connecticut you will wait for a while until you actually see an earthquake uh, in that size Molly will see. Yeah so that leads perfectly into my next question. We talked about the 7.8 earthquake that you just mentioned that's projected to occur near Los Angeles in the next few decades, the big one in the monologue. And LA is one of many earthquake prone cities. So I'm curious as a geologist, what your advice would be to people in earthquake prone regions trying to prepare and stay safe. In case of California, you have to be prepared that there will be an earthquake coming in your lifetime. In, in California. You will experience a couple of earthquakes actually in California in your lifetime. And so that means you should prepare for the likelihood that the earthquakes your experience is actually not a, a small one, but it is actually a big one. That means you have to make some sort of emergency preparations. And you should actually also put some pressure on your government which is your city government, your mayors. Uh, if you're at a university at UCLA, you have some emergency plan prepared for earthquakes and you should train for earthquakes. Um, there is every year, there's the earthquake training day where you actually are supposed to do duck, go underneath and hold yourself. So there needs to be an emergency plan. There needs to be some level of preparedness for any eventuality of the natural disaster. That's all the questions from me. I'm going to hand it off to Joe and Molly now. So Joe, let's go to you. So how would you use the geological record to identify when an earthquake happened? I mean, the first thing what geochronology allows you to do is calculate rates. A very crude and simple method of predicting earthquake is something you maybe have heard, which is called a reoccurrence interval, where we can actually take look simply at the reoccurrence of an event and then use statistical methods to calculate the probability of how likely it is a specific event will occur. 
some of you maybe have heard it more in floods when you suddenly hear this was a 100 year flood. That means that statistically, the size of the flood, the volume of water which actually moved out of the river would occur every 100 years. That doesn't mean it occurs every 100 years, but it is actually a possibility to look into that. So the geologic record gives us a possibility to create a database to figure out where did we actually had earthquakes occurring. Were there periods where there were high frequency of earthquakes and looking at those periods, could this be used to maybe predict stuff in the future? If an earthquake occurs, it produces specific structures in the earth. So we can actually look at the geologic record. We can use that material to date when that event actually occurred. And then we can create a database, how many earthquakes did we actually had there and can use that to integrate that into a reoccurrence interval. Does that help us to do a prediction of earthquakes? Yes and no. If we know the location where specific earthquakes happen, it helps us to localize the, the local areas where in the future earthquakes might occur. In them. But that is extremely coarse and it's, it's a large scale event what we are actually looking in there. So the prediction from the point of prediction point, if you're a city planner, you want to know when the next earthquake is actually happening, that doesn't help in that regard. Molly, take it away. Personally, I realize I've never felt an earthquake in my life. And it's my second, I'm almost at two years in Los Angeles. So I'm curious if, if you know, being able to feel earthquakes is due to body sensitivity or have I just been in earthquake safe buildings every time there's an earthquake or whether that's due to you know, being in the right place within LA County um, at the time of the earthquake? Probably all of the above. So uh, you have a requirement in earthquake, I think, in, in Los Angeles to withstand an earthquake of the Richter scale six and below. And so your building is probably, is not prone to shake that strongly compared to other buildings. And the other thing is you feel earthquakes as high as you up in the building. I don't know which floor you are in, in your building. If you're at the ground floor, you probably won't feel a lot of earthquakes. But if you're at the 70s floor on, on a high rise, the movement of the building is much bigger than actually if you're down at the ground floor because the angling point is actually much lower. The other thing is I don't know exactly where you live. <laughs> and so, so... There are regions, as, as Ethan pointed out, the San Andreas Fault, which is that big uh, fault line you're actually looking at, has these fibers, these small fault lines, which are active, and then you have inactive faults. You might be far away from the current active fault, what we're actually seeing there. So there is a decrease of energy distribution from that fault line, what we see there. You might be living actually on a very solid ground. You might be living on a granite, which doesn't move as much as sediment, loose sediment. And you might have been out of town. A lot of times earthquake events are happening in seconds. You feel aftershocks a little bit later on that. But it's likely that you, you're just lucky. Thank you for answering that question. I had just seen a 
Facebook post yesterday from someone saying earthquake in LA, like where? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, my second question, like Ethan talked about in the monologue, most earthquakes happen underwater. So I'm just curious if there's destruction to the same level and what the pressure is like that makes earthquakes leave different types of damage underwater versus on land like we see, for example, in San Francisco or Los Angeles. The intensity of an earthquake is dependent on how much stress or forces we are actually applying to that and build up the stress and releasing that energy. There is a specific region in the ocean, which we call the mid-ocean ridges, where we actually are moving plates apart compared to where we are moving plates together. We have in Washington, in Northern America, we have two plates colliding. We have in Middle America, we actually have two plates colliding. And there's a connection fault, which we call the San Andreas fault, where where actually the plates are not colliding. They're not moving apart, but they're moving side by side. So you actually have a side by side moving movement there in California. But the idea in the mid-ocean ridges is that we have lots of earthquakes relatively high in the crust. We are not building up as much stress and strain, which produces an, a lot of smaller earthquakes. In contrast to these, when two plates are moving towards each other, we actually are in a situation where we can build up much, much more stress. So the biggest earthquakes we are all experience all the time is in regions where two plates are colliding with each other and then building up stress over a long period of time. At the end, if we are thinking about that, it has nothing to do with the amount of water we are looking at. It's simply that mechanism, how we are building up stress and how we are releasing the material. So it doesn't help if we are taking Los Angeles and put that underwater. It doesn't diminish the amount of stress or earthquake we will see. Dr. Buckwell, thank you so much for joining us. That's it? Yeah. That was easy. (laughs) Great questions. Joe and Molly, great questions. Absolutely great questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. All right. So let's have a conversation. And first, I was curious. I know both of you said you've never experienced an earthquake in your lifetime, nor have I. Have you ever thought about this as an issue? Did you realize quite how destructive they can be? Because I honestly had no idea going into this. Um, I think definitely since I moved to Los Angeles, I have been more inclined to research the issue and be more aware And like I said, probably every month there's an earthquake of a a significant magnitude that gets people talking about the issue. There are definitely disproportionate effects, uh, many of which largely impact minority communities. And I think that um, that's definitely an interesting thing to kind of research in Los Angeles and San Francisco. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, what were your first impressions? Having never lived in an earthquake-prone area, I'd never... It's always been one of those things where you see it on TV and you're like, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me because it doesn't directly impact you. But I think it was last year I sat sat down with my grandpa and he was in the, uh, when he was in the Air Force, he helped out with earthquake relief and going through pictures with him. 
it made it real for me because being in the Air Force, I realized maybe I will be in a position one day where I'm going to be providing um, disaster relief related to earthquakes. And just the amount of destruction they can do in such a short time scale is astounding. So people don't have time to react to it because you can't predict it. It's not like a hurricane where, you know, at least then you can, people are saying, okay, now we need to get out. But this is just, this is something you're there and it happens. And it, it does impact me. Uh, I didn't ever realize it, but economically, it would impact me when taxpayer money is going to fund this. And maybe if there is high frequency earthquakes, maybe we need to ramp up our taxes in that front. Yeah, that's a really good point. The economic impacts are felt in a lot more than just the city where they occur. So Molly, since you're in LA, how aware do you feel like people are of earthquakes and how prepared do you think people are and what do you think could be done to improve? That's a great question. Like I had mentioned earlier, I grew up in the Midwest and have obviously only been in LA for the last two years. So I'm not exactly sure what the awareness is like and how heavily taught it is in elementary school, middle school, high school, say. So I'm sure that there was a lot of earthquake drills and, you know, tips on how to respond. Uh, Personally, while attending UCLA, I've never participated in an earthquake drill and was never given a outline of what to do if it happens. Um, And I think I'm definitely on the fringes of understanding and obviously being in tune with an earthquake if it happens. So I definitely think that it's important to kind of educate the youth. And I also think it's important kind of just when we're talking about Los Angeles and San Francisco and earthquake prone cities, I think it's important to consider the large homeless populations that also exist in both of those cities. Um, California has approximately 150,000 people who are experiencing homelessness. So I think there's definitely a need for procedures in place to protect those people of the community who are obviously very vulnerable and would experience uh, larger effects if and when the earthquake occurs. Yeah, absolutely. Joe, how do you think we could increase public awareness and get people to understand how important it is? What a lot of people react to is, how am I going to pay for my house to be rebuilt. So I think it needs to be extremely transparent for everyone who owns things and is a property owner or a business owner. When you're signing on to these things, in the event of an earthquake, this is what would happen. Because I feel like a lot of people may be reactive saying like, okay, now I just apply to FEMA and oh crap, well, I didn't get that. I think people need to be aware and educated when they're signing the contract they're going to buy something or they're working somewhere, what will happen to their job, uh, what will happen to their property, how it will be replaced. And then what I was talking about a little bit earlier is that it comes on the individual is to plan for it. So, you know, maybe it is setting aside a special insurance policy that could help supplement that you're doing yourself because you know you're living in, a, in an area prone to something like that happening. Yeah, so you brought up an important point with buildings and transparency, how if you're buying a house or a company's buying a building, they may not know exactly how safe the building is in the case of an earthquake. In terms of retrofits and inspections, what moves do you think the city could be making and should it be more a public burden or a private burden or a combination? 
I think it first falls on the local government. They need to make it transparent as to which buildings are earthquake prepared and which ones are not. And then I think it falls more on the private companies to how what they're going to do about that. So what I think the public sector can kind of do is provide incentives to say, okay, if you are an earthquake prepared building, you maybe you get this slight tax break. Or it could be in the event of a disaster, you're this percent covered in repair if you've taken the necessary precautions. So once you have that baseline evaluation, the private individual can say, I do or do not want to live in this building because I know this much is going to be covered or this much isn't going to be covered. Or let's say you're going to work for a company and they can't guarantee your job back because they can't rebuild their building if an earthquake goes down then maybe you don't take a job offer there. So that way you're kind of getting that competitive free market advantage. I definitely agree with Joe in terms of building preparedness. I definitely think that it begins with the public sector and the responsibility lies within the county and the state government to ensure that all buildings are fit to withstand an earthquake on the Richter scale uh, of six or less. And I do also agree with Joe a bit on this. It is obviously an individual choice. And I know there's obviously a lot of third, fourth, fifth generation uh, Angelinos who are living in Los Angeles and a lot of job opportunities and family lies here. So I wouldn't agree that it's, you know, when you're born in Los Angeles, born and raised and you have your job there, it's hard to say that that was your choice in terms of living there. So you have to accept the earthquake consequences. But I do agree that there is definitely some individual preparedness that has to be thought through and acted upon as well. I think it's a requirement that the evaluation of the buildings occur and that it's transparent, but I don't think it should be forced to say, if you guys don't you know, improve your building to this, then you're going to be charged this or whatever. I think it should be more of an incentive to do that. People are going to want to live there. People are going to want to work there if the building is insured or, you know, earthquake proofed. And then in terms of people growing up there, yeah, I definitely get that because, you know, growing up there, you're kind of fixed, you know, for at least, you know, almost the first 18 years of your life. But then I, I think there does come a point in time when you can choose to stay or choose to go. Like Joe said, it's, you know, to move uh, and kind of uproot your life is definitely a financial privilege, I would say, and you have to save up enough money, which I'm not sure the people who would be disproportionately affected by the earthquakes and who might not be able to afford earthquake insurance or make that uh, switch to an earthquake-proof building have that opportunity to move. Sometimes the earthquake is a consequence not many people can avoid, if that makes sense. We talked a bit in the monologue about how different groups are disproportionately affected. Molly mentioned the homeless population. We also talked about renters and specifically the African-American community. So I'm curious for those populations with lower incomes that can't really prepare, how do we handle that? What can we provide to them to try to keep them safe as best we can? So I think that one of the ways we can start in ensuring earthquake protection for those who are disadvantaged in society, and especially Los Angeles and the Bay Area, is to build those sturdy 
public housing units to ensure that when a big earthquake comes, people are protected and to not increase the homeless population even more. And an increase in more public housing units, and that obviously comes with a lot of homelessness problems, you know, kind of taking that housing first initiative and making sure that people are housed and safe in regards to earthquakes and not necessarily demanding employment or sobriety um, before putting those vulnerable individuals into public housing. Joe, what steps do you think might be effective? If we're thinking low-income housing, by the time you retrofit a building, the foundations that this housing is built on, I feel like at that point, you might as well just build a new building. But I think there is something to be said about providing the incentive and trying to subsidize new housing that is earthquake-proof. Because at the end of the day, I feel like trying to take something that's not inherently designed to withstand it, it's going to be more expensive in the long run. The government can subsidize construction companies um, who want to build this new housing. They can subsidize them and get those people working to actually, you know, quote unquote, build their own homes, but they're working for that company. So, Joe, you were mentioning how it may make more sense to allocate funds toward building new earthquake safe buildings as opposed to retrofitting currently non-earthquake safe buildings. And I think in terms of cost, it really depends on what retrofits you're doing. What LA did with their city emergency management department obviously cost a ridiculous amount of money because they actually suspended the building off the air, but that's not what they're doing with most buildings. They're doing much cheaper retrofits. If we were building new buildings as opposed to doing the retrofits, I think a pro would be that there would be more housing available, but a con would be that the low-income housing would likely continue to be non-earthquake safe because people would still live in those non-earthquake safe buildings. They wouldn't just abandon them. You know, the retrofitting of public housing and homeless shelters comes with the assumption that the building is a sturdy building already, and I think that that assumption is tough to make in terms of the homeless shelters and public housing units in the city of Los Angeles and LA County as a whole. And I think that there are definitely opportunities that can occur to build sturdier, cleaner, and sustainable buildings for the use of either homeless shelters or public housing units throughout LA County that could provide more benefits and be better long-term solutions. So I think the retrofits are a good idea in hindsight. And as I kind of think back to what I've been saying, I think that it's important to acknowledge that the retrofits would be beneficial for the building, but the building itself is not up to par. Yeah, so I think modifying the existing buildings to a degree which they're survivable would be a great initiative because that way you're not spending as much money. But if you make them safer, then I think that is important in the long run. It's kind of like when you're designing a car, the car is going to get destroyed. You're not worried about that. You're worried about the person surviving. So I think it should be, the action should be taken now. If you're not going to build new buildings, which may end up being a good idea, if you're able to make it kind of like cars nowadays, where, yeah, it's going to destroy, but the person get destroyed, but the person's side is going to get to uh, survive. And then, once an earthquake happens and wipes out all these crappy buildings, 
then you can rebuild. But I think taking that analysis and making them survivable would be a possible solution. Yeah, Joe, so LA's building code now is actually exactly what you were just saying, make it survivable, but not necessarily as concerned about the structure itself holding up. And that's for building new buildings for a new building, should there be incentives or changes to the building code that actually make the building still standing after or if survivable is a sufficient goal. I think that the policy in itself is good. That's what a safety factor is for, is to protect the individual when you're doing engineering codes. And that's what your safety factor has to represent. So I think that's what the government should be enforcing. But it comes down to the company and the person who owns that building and that property. I think that's the con- that comes down to the consumer at the end of the day and whether the company really wants to be around long enough. Do they want their building to stay? I personally, if I was gonna be there, I, I would make my building able to withstand an earthquake knowing the frequency that with which they happen i i think it'd be cheaper in the long run but it's just like anything as long as it's survivable i think that's that's all that needs to be enforced i think that that is kind of like joe said comes down to the consumer and obviously can be used for a wide array of problems that we face globally and domestically and obviously in our respective states and cities is it the cheaper option i guess it's quality over monetary quantity is what it sounds like to me it's coming down to and i think that is a broader and more complex issue that transcends a lot of problems so much much to think about molly joe thank you so much for joining us yeah this was great super interesting thanks for having us on This wraps up episode seven of The Sweaty Penguin. Thank you again to Robert Buckwalt for his insights and scientific perspective. Stay tuned for next week's episode. We'll see you there. Today's episode was written by Ethan Brown, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweat Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.